streaming live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island. I'm excited to host the first Nuit Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I am your host and artistic director, Julie Nagam, and this is my sixth episode across ice flows and oceans. I'm excited to share stories from artists and curators, Rachel Rakana, Michael Bridgman, Jerry Evans, Dr. Leuli Estrella, and Maureen Grubin. Our guests will connect us to the water as a route for collaborative exchanges, to be understood as a complex puzzle of islands within the Pacific and circumpolar waters. Leuli sets the stage for our travels across this massive and stunning archipelago. Yeah, Talafalava. My name is Leo Shragi. I'm from the Samun Archipelago villages of Apia, Lelumwena, Siumu, and Saladalonga, and also have uh, Chinese, uh, European, and Persian ancestry. And there, you know, I was talking with a friend last week about the different words for water and for ocean in Samoan. And so there's like the foreshore, closest part of the water to the beach is called Sami. And then the deep ocean is Moana, but then even deeper and more kind of expansive is the Vasa or Vasalao Laos, which is like the sacred relational space between islands, between all of us. And then Vai meaning water, very similar, uh, same pronunciation as in Hawaiian and a few other languages. So there's in the language and in the values that I understand our ancestors to have had, there's a real emphasis on everything being connected, of course, and the clan estates going from the ridge of the mountains all the way down to the um, beach and to the reef, which have been quite disrupted by evangelization and the missionaries and different colonial regimes. A lot of the villages were were ocean-facing on the shores, and when the missionaries arrived, they made roads so that the towns and all the villages were kind of like facing the road and facing the port. So things shifted a lot. I find water really potent signifier for a number of healing practices and in terms of like sensuality and sexuality from pre-colonial times to a really crisscrossed, very culturally complex and diverse region, which is, I think, in a lot of the work that I've been doing, working from concepts in different indigenous languages of the Great Ocean to kind of conceptualize the region as a great ocean, first of all, which is what many of the languages describe. The ocean space that connects all of these archipelagos but also that uh, we are also connected to indigenous peoples along the coasts of the Americas, of East Asia and Australia in like a lot deeper time. And that ocean-going vessels were constantly going backwards and forwards up until the arrival of Europeans and a little bit of time after that too, before so many mass death events arrived. And then like significantly for my practice living and working between Canada and Australia is that the international state line crosses the middle of the Samoan Archipelago and divides the American unincorporated territory of American Samoa and the former British, former German colonized independent state of Samoa, where my mother lives and uh, where my grandma and everybody has been. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of a lot of considerations for me of how we conceive of territory, particularly when Western maps are so ubiquitous. 
and people are want to think of all of these islands as like small dots, but actually the territory kind of encompasses the reef and then a bit beyond the reef in the kind of spatial imagination and clan estates and the rights and responsibilities to look after a particular species. The way that the ocean morphs and shifts into new land masses, or is a driving force behind our very existence. Manamoana curators and artists Rachel and Michael have built this incredible project around the essence of water and our relationship to it. It was highlighted in Nui Live and will be a featured project for Nui 2021 when we can gather again in public space. I love water for a start and my practice has been focused around themes of people and water since I was at art school, which is now 30 years ago. The kaupapa or the kaupapa is kind of like the theme or the basis or the foundation of our curatorial approach. And so we, because it's literally on our ocean, it's been, the artwork has been projected on the, the water spray from our, from the sea. It just made sense to have that as a theme, upholding the mana or the, the well-being of our oceans and our waterways and our water bodies and acknowledging our relationships to the ocean and with, within the ocean. So from a Māori and Pacific kind of perspective, we, we whakapapa or our genealogy traces us back and connects us into the environment, including the ocean. And so that sort of, in terms of um, framing it, it was really important that it was Māori and Pacifica-led and framed so that it was telling our stories in our ways and, yeah, prioritising, privileging that. Yeah, my story is kind of interesting. We, we had the wānanga, so as Rachel said, and I was a great admirer of Rachel's work, so I knew a lot about Rachel through her work, and obviously I was connected to a lot of the ideas. And we had a Waimanga at Messi, and I couldn't believe I was actually sitting beside her, so I got really excited. And um, in the background, <laughs> just funnily enough and coincidentally, um, the people who ran the festival, the Lux Festival of Light, which Massey was connected to, knew that there was a big change coming forward with the structure of that festival. So the opportunity from one of the stakeholders and board members, Storybox, who we collaborate with, said there's a whole bunch of big ideas, but I really wanted to narrow it down to the water screen for personal reasons. Um, so yeah, once I spoke to Rachel, um, she jumped at it and, and really our relationship and friendship and ideas started to springboard from getting commitment from the council and Storybox to work together and so we sort of um, got money and the conversations and the dialogue and the real, the co-papa of all the creatives and thinkers and movers uh, really started to shape up and come together. Well, I guess the, the nuts and bolts of it. The co-papa yeah. driven like collaborative processes is quite unique in the, in the sense that it does sort of bring together some not so likely art forms but I guess with the kaupapa structure there's a lot of respect from all the artists with other disciplines so we sort of try to fuse poetry, um, dance, some drama, traditional sculpture, animation, 
filmmaking. So there's a whole lot of things, painting, music. So this this cross-pollination of different ideas and different approaches. So there's a really interesting thing that happens um, when you put those things together. So, yeah, there's some inherent differences, I guess, in terms of collaborative structures uh, or, or processes that happen within when you mix these things together. So I guess it's a learning kind of thing. Everything's unique, but I guess there's a basic set of uh, values and principles uh, within the co-papa structure um, that everybody sort of adheres to. Would that be right, Rachel? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so everyone yeah, I, sort of I, I has this mutual kind of collaboration, respect, and there's certain um, ideas that we sort of like anchor and hinge all of the sort of process going forward. Yeah, um, and those are, they're kind of in the themes that those values are really held in the idea of mana moana because the term itself, moana, is our uh, our Maori, well, actually, it's, I think there are 30 languages across the Pacific that use the word moana for the ocean. And then and mana is also a term that is shared across the Pacific. It's a word that I don't think it even changes. It's like it stays as mana. And that's, that's about having respect, upholding the mana is how you draw the best out of everybody and everything. And so that's kind of inherent in the project in the way that people work together. And also, there's a, I like to think there's a fluidity in it as well. So as a creative process, you kind of, you know, it's always a bit fluid. And when you're collaborating, it needs to be even more so. So some of the, some of the artists we've worked with, we asked them to work together and some of them didn't know each other. Others, we approached them because they were already operating in a collaborative way. And so we approached them to develop their ideas or come up with something. And we're kind of keeping that open. And right now we are looking at the third, like next year will be our third year or our third season. And so what we did this year was we brought everybody who worked with us last year. So we went to them first and asked if they were keen to continue. And we'll we'll continue to do that. So we're kind of adding more artists in, but also carrying those along who have been part of it. And one of the other things we targeted artists across different mediums, but artists who were already talking about the ocean and talking about decolonisation in in terms of the environment and the sea and our relationships with each other. We targeted people who were already working on those things in the first place. Yeah, well, one of our values is VAT, which I guess is a term which really binds all the ocean people together. So across the Pacific, similar to some of the other words that we have, the connection with different islands uh, using this term. And it's sort of like the spaces that connect us, the, the, the spaces in between. So I guess one way you could look at it is a lot of people look at the separation of the water, but uh, from a Pacific point of view, it's really like a connecting thing. So you look at it as a connection point. So it's really like a binding thing. A lot yeah. of people, you know, really feel strongly to it. We, the Pacific Ocean, I can't remember how much of the Earth it covers, but it's, it's huge. And so we, we come, I mean, New Zealand is one of the, we're made up of, the bigger islands of the Pacific, but we're yeah, 
basically our ancestors travelled across the Pacific thousands of years ago and populated the island from right across, from Hawaii to, well, yeah, just covered the whole whole area. And that was because they were really great voyagers and could travel. The, the ocean was our, was our highway. It was the way of maintaining our connections and staying connected. So it wasn't a barrier at all. It was a connector. And it connects us in a really expensive way. So, so it's not about being stuck on small land masses. I was blown away with Mana Moana and the shift to the digital ocean. There are such strong connections between the Pacific and circumpolar waters and their ways of being. We are now getting to travel to the edge of the most northern western places in Canada, where we get to connect with artist Maureen, who shares with us the background stories of her work for Nuit Blanche. I'm currently living here in my hometown of Tuktoyaktuk, Northwest Territory. It's right on the edge of the Arctic Ocean. My home is situated right along the shores. And my view is of the, the Pingos. So our land is called the Land of the Pingos, uh, which are ice-cored hills with a, a layer of permafrost. And that's my view. So there's like about 1,400 plus Pingos are in this area and we're right by the Beaufort Sea. So the piece I did for New Blanche is called Kagasaluk, which is my father's Inuvalukun name. And it's about his fox stretcher, but it's multiplied and presented at a larger than life scale. And that was hand carved by my father. He was uh, first and foremost a trapper and a hunter and one of the most uh, renowned trappers in the Western Arctic region. He, at one, one year, like in the 1950s, I believe it was 1951, he trapped over 1,000 white foxes, about 200 colored foxes, 80 to 90 Martin. So he had three trap lines, one for Martin and Mink, one for colored foxes, one for white foxes, and he would travel as far as Cape Dalhousie, which is about 500 miles from Tuck, uh, with a dog team. So he was a very busy, hardworking man. And he always said he deprived himself the pleasures of life. Like when everybody was dancing and having a good time, he was out there working. And then he would feed the people and work for the people. And he said he always worked for the betterment of the community. So. The trapping was the beginning of his um, entrepreneurship. With his successful trapping, he became um, the founder of E-Grubens Transport, which again started with the dog team and getting dry fish for the RCMP, just hiring himself out locally with the, with the Duline sites and the RCMP and the Roman Catholic Church. And that led him to um, purchase his first motorized equipment, which was a bombardier. And with that, he was able to do more charter services to Aklavik and Inuvik. And then that also allowed him to buy his first pickup truck. So he just progressed from there. And 
and became one of the the most prominent uh, entrepreneurs in the Western Arctic. But it um it all started with the, the dog team. Him and my mother worked very hard and worked together, and that became E Grubin's Transport. So the Silver Fox, the trapping really was a big part of uh, opening up this area and also Canada, the fur industry. So I thought with um, making the fox stretcher and multiplying it and showing it at a at a bigger scale allowed the fox stretcher with the materiality that is being used, you know, the shining surface. It was very reminiscent of the Arctic and ice and snow, which creates, when you look out my window, it's like a landscape of light. You know, the snow is all sparkly and shiny and it's white and just like a prism of different shades of blue. So that's where that inspiration came from. Oh my God, that was so exciting to see. That was my first experience with the augmented reality. And I was super excited to take pictures, you know, all over the community. And just thinking of how amazed my my dad would be at seeing his fox stretcher just appear anywhere in the world. When he did give me the one fox stretcher that is walnut colored because of all the oils that's been used so many times. And when he gave it to me, I said, Dad, you know what? This fox stretcher is going to become famous. It's going to be all over. And sure enough, it's like, it's happened. I just wish I could be able to show him. But yeah, I was like picking berries with my one of my older sisters this summer. And uh, I took a picture with of her in the background of the fox stretcher. It's just really hard for people to understand, like, like, how is that possible? Yeah, it really is, but it's very cool. Your work was so awesome in many of the environments I saw and experienced it in. I just loved seeing the images from your territory. I'm so excited to hear about some of your new work that's in progress. And I just finished a project with these three polar bear rugs that were gifted to me by the Museum of Anthropology in Vancouver. And uh, they were deteriorating. So I brought them back home and gave them a good snow wash (laughs) and brought them back out onto the ice and put them on these tripods that were used during the oil exploration days by surveyors. So they're the uh, old, almost vintage big yellow tripods. So I put those out on the ice and put the polar bear rugs on and did photo shoots at different times of the day, in the morning, afternoon, and at night with all the stars out. And so we left them out for maybe two weeks and we got to see the overflow like this. This is early, end of October, early November. This is when ice is just first freezing up. So there's a lot of overflow. So the, the overflow went over the tripod. So the bears got partially submerged in the ice, which was even more beautiful. And they just became part of the landscape. So we're pretty excited about that. I did a little video on the ice as it was forming and cracking under each footstep. So yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. The, with the polar bears? 
Yeah, it is all tied together with the message which was shown at the Abidakwane show in Ottawa. The Morse code. So that one is like three short bars, three long bars, three short bars made with polar bear guard hair. And I also wrote a little poem about those three bears that were out there that had to do with uncertainty um, about our ice and what's happening within our own community in regards to climate change and how the land is being eroded at a very rapid and they're to the point where they're moving homes away from the point that we call this peninsula that juts out into the ocean. So they're moving the houses inland. And yeah, so a lot of my work is geared or reflects what's happening within this Arctic landscape. Yeah, I think it's really important that we're all beginning to connect with the Sami people, the Chukotka. Uh, Greenlandic, just the whole circumpolar Arctic and working together to bring about all these these issues that we are facing today in regards to the thinning ice, the climate change and food security and all those issues. There's just so much that we need to pull together to work through and talk about and uh, raise the issues of where we're at and how we're affected by all these these global issues. Understanding the impact of climate change and the ways in which the circumpolar is shifting and melting, which is transforming the Pacific Islands to submerge deep into the ocean. These relationships to different areas of the globe are all connected through the changing environment where we are transporting you to another few thousand kilometers to the most eastern edge of Canada, Newfoundland to hear from Jerry about his caribou and the shifts of their migration patterns. My name is Jerry Evans. From, uh, I live in St. John's, Newfoundland. Uh, we call it Karamwuk, place across the waves. I lived here all my life, apart from the time I, I went to college in uh, Nascat. Graduated from there in 1986 with a Bachelor of Fine Arts, and I gravitated towards printmaking, even though I was a, a painter before I went there, and I still paint too, but I, you know, I, I, I uh, incorporate a lot of different practices into my art making, and I work in film right now to feed the family and pay the mortgage and all that kind of stuff, but uh, I always seem to find some time in, in the studio to to get those creative juices flowing and, and to make some uh, some work. Well, I, I worked at, uh, like I said, I gravitated towards printmaking at NASCAD. I love the hands-on, the tactileness of, of the drawing and, and the smell of the inks and all of that, and uh, you know the feel of the paper and the, and, the, and the, that that visual of, of pulling, you know, from the stone that print for the first time when you see that uh, because you're working all the time and you don't know what you really have until you have that on paper. So I, I just really enjoyed that. And I, I was lucky enough that when I did graduate from that, I came back to St. John's at St. Michael's Print Shop, which is still here, had moved from the community of St. Michael's just down south of St. John's. And uh, it became, you know, it's, it's an artist-run center and uh, they have all of the, uh, they have entirely old facilities and lithography facilities. And it's a not-for-profit organization. They have a visiting artist program where artists have come from all over the world for you know, since 86 and slightly before that. And uh, it's just a great atmosphere to work. You know, they had all, they had all the, the facilities uh, that, that I needed to uh, carry on uh, in my printmaking practice. And uh, 
I, I worked there as, as an artist first, and then I, over the years, I, I spent time there on the board, and I worked there in, in the capacity as a master printer, where, where other artists would hire my expertise as a master printer to help bring their work to fruition as a, as a lithograph or an intaglio print. So, you know, St. Michael's has been really good to me. It's so true. The St. Michael's printmaking studio is awesome. I led a printmaking workshop in 2016 for Inuit Blanche as part of training Inuit and Innu artists that didn't have access to printmaking as the rest of Inuit Nunanga had since the late 1950s. This is where I got the privilege to meet Jerry and learn about his care and concern for the caribou herds. I just love how he explains how his augmented reality work just blew his mind. That piece in, in different perspectives, shall I say. You know, I played with uh, that as a projection previously to uh, the Toronto Nuit Blanche project. And uh, when I was invited to be a part of that, of course, that kind of just triggered in my head and, and I gravitated towards that image because I wanted to... Because I, when I first created the image, I, also, I always kind of visualized it in a three-dimensional point of view. And to be able to, like, to make that the migrating caribou. I mean, the whole piece is, is about caribou and how caribou are so important to our people here and, you know, and to all uh, uh, peoples of, of uh, Northern Territories where, where the caribou have lived, you know, and they've lived, they, they've occupied, you know, far south of Nova Scotia to, you know, to the Arctic and as uh, far east to, as here in, in Newfoundland to, uh, to British Columbia and Alaska. So, you know, and, and that's been, the, you know, the provider of, of, you know, sustenance and clothing and tools and, 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 uh, and so on for, for millennia, for, our, for all our peoples, right? So I guess I, I kind of want to celebrate that. And, and in this time today, you know, there's such, a, you know, with, with, with climate change and so on and uh, other factors, you know, the caribou are, are in decline and, you know, they've certainly disappeared from uh, areas like Nova Scotia and uh, southern parts of Canada, you know, uh, 100 years ago or more. And, um, you know, uh, I, I guess in celebrating the caribou and putting the caribou out there again, I'm kind of kind of bringing them back. And and then another piece where I, in our language, it's uh, Abaja Lujik. It's called Bringing Them Back. And But uh, the caribou are, uh, um, yeah. I mean, you know, we've lived in harmony with the caribou for so long, and uh, you know, we've forgotten a lot of of, of uh, those important relationships. And uh, you know, I, I just think it's important that uh, you know we continue to uh, to strive to live in harmony with with nature. Well, just to put them in a space that I had never envisioned in the first place was, was mind-boggling to me. You know, I've never worked in this medium before. You know, to to uh, take any of my work and put it on that new platform was just uh, incredible and uh, you know to be in the company of all those other artists but uh, you know, to see that piece uh, move in, in a space outside of the traditional colonialist gallery space and, and uh, you know and, and to have that uh, uh, opportunity for not just people in a box in a gallery just, you know to look at work on a wall or on a podium but to, you know to, to visualize something where you are at that moment in space you know, at this time, anywhere in the world, it's like, I mean, I'm speechless. I mean, I, I it's hard to, you know, for me, first one, I, you know, it's, yeah, it's incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it got there. Those people saw my work. 
that's amazing. See, you know, that, that, that just blows my mind. That's awesome. Well, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's an honor to be, you know, at this time to be in, in conversation with all our indigenous artists. I mean, in this time of decolonization, uh, we as, as indigenous people have to come together to work together, to, to strive to maintain our culture and traditions so that, uh, you know, we will have that there for, for our children and our, our children's children. I mean, I, I can speak from experience because, you know, being this place here, the first place of contact, we've lost so much. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been a, how do you say, culture vulture, you know, uh, practically all my life trying to absorb things that my, my father grew up not having, you know, and uh, it's... Um, it's important and it's a lifelong journey and I just hope that I can pass that on. I just get so excited thinking about those AR works traveling all across the planet. Just as Jerry articulated the importance of this and the connections for Indigenous people to spark those connections to their shared colonial histories. The space between us is grounded in Pacific concepts of the Va. As Leuli expands on the importance of language and how we are all connected in this vast oceanic space. Different kind of poetic renditions of sacred relational space. So the Samoan concept of va, which is echoed in other languages, is like a visualization of the indelible links between us both, between us and objects, but not as a kind of separation, really the space that connects everything. And so if a relationship isn't going well, then you, you kind of say that, oh, you need to fix your VAR, you need to spend time with that relationship, you need to work on that. And I think what, and then in other languages, in the Garigal language of Sydney, it's Garigarang, in uh, Haku language, in uh, Eastern Papua New Guinea, uh, sorry, in uh, Tinata Tuna language or Gunan Tuna language, it's Nata, so like the deep bay that just keeps going. So there's quite, and then uh, in Hawaiian and Māori, uh, Moana Nui Akiwa, Moana Nui Akiwa. So kind of linked to the Wākea, the Sky Father, or to Kiwa, an ancestor figure, depending on the genealogy and the semantic shifts in each part of the region. And I feel like it's even though it's like a singular monolithic concept, it's more poetic and it's based in all our languages in a way that this arbitrary race hierarchy with black people at the bottom, light, brown people in the middle and Polynesians closest to toxic whiteness at the top really doesn't serve our purposes and it doesn't reflect the thousands of years of uh, relationships across the region. And it also like excludes all of the other indigenous peoples across all of the shores of the Great Ocean, which have always been in relationship with each other, a lot of ocean-going voyages and canoes and things. So I really try to foreground that and many colleagues are doing that as well in their work. And I don't know how we can really get rid of the thinking, that really toxic racist thinking within, and the really, it's based on anti-blackness, that those theories that came out of Europe and those maps that are quite monolithic because it's kind of what you're ingrained to think, oh, I am a Polynesian, I, I am like this. But actually, these terms are, have been transliterated into our languages very recently, and they're not, they're not of us. They're from a completely different logic of control and empire that, you know, arises in the Middle Ages in Europe. In the first two episodes of Belonging to Place, I wanted to start to unpack slavery and colonialism. And as Leuli is going to ground us in the Pacific colonial mapping and mindset, it's important to understand that after slavery was abolished in North America, it continued in various formats of blackbirding and indentured labor in the Pacific. 
you know, the way that we as islanders imagine this oceanscape as like a continuation of all of our spatial relationships has really shifted under European and East Asian kind of empires, um, particularly thinking through the labor flow of human beings who were trafficked, particularly from what's currently Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, to the sugar and cotton plantations in Australia. From 1863 to 1904, there were over 62,000 people who were kidnapped, enslaved, and brought to work on the sugar and cotton plantations in Queensland, all along the coast, and northern New South Wales. Similar practices happened in the northern part of the Northern Territory and Western Australia and the top of Queensland to do with pearling industry there. But that had a lot of folks from Southeast Asia working as divers and Aboriginal people working as divers with very close to death conditions and low pay. And then blackbirding in Australia really, I think, fed some of the kind of race mania that uh, led to the colonies coming together as Australia in 1901. And the first act of parliament in 1901, the federal parliament in Australia was to restrict the sale of opium to Chinamen and Indians and to deport the 62,000 Pacific Island slaves from all of these different archipelagos. And some of the oral history that uh, mentors like Auntie Sana Balai has shared with me have been transferred between generations, you know, transmitted these stories of people going off to be initiated in ceremony in the bush and then getting kidnapped or slain. And so quite, quite horrific. Some of the communities who remained in Australia, I think there were maybe like three, four thousand who remained. Their descendants are now, they identify as the Australian South Sea Islander community. And there are about 30,000 of them. And some of the uh, really amazing artists and curators that you can look up. Yeah, so I think there's, and that sadly that practice was also emulated in other archipelagos, but in the other direction. So from Tokelau and where people were taken to work in the mines, the guano mines in Peru. And sometimes like half a population of an island would be kidnapped in one go. And on that side, very few remnants of, or kind of like historical records have been available. So I know of a few artists who've tried to go physically go there and try and find some traces of some of their ancestor kin. Yeah, so there's quite a like dark, uh, well, it's a very white history of uh, these kinds of activities in, in the Great Ocean. And sadly, the kind of amnesia, particularly in Australia and in New Zealand around the impacts of colonial sugar plantations and that whole economy and race hierarchy really doesn't, hasn't really set in uh, in a lot of people's minds in the general population. But I think art is a really powerful way. Um, also the late Fijian, uh, Italki Viti um, academic, Tracy Bani Vanua Mar, she's a really incredible historian and she wrote a lot about the blackbirding trade and also Australia's very complicated colonial relationship with a lot of archipelagos nearby. Every time I think of the complex layers of our histories, colonialism, slavery, imperialism, and indentured labor, how it has impacted generations of our families, I continue to see the gravity of the importance of drawing on circumpolar and Pacific connections to our stories here in Turtle Island. Each new story I hear gets me closer to understanding our shared connection and distinct difference of localized history of each place. Rachel and Mike continue to explain the expansive knowledge of the ocean and our relationship to it.
without being part of a massive ocean. That, that sort of bar, that, it sort of encompasses those ideas that we're connected. The things that are between us are acknowledged as in our relationships. So the kind of relational spaces that exist between us and you know other islands, other places. So the ocean kind of stands in as a metaphor for that that connection or that ability to connect. And in the work with the website, it was I know it was really important to me that that we didn't just make the work like the work isn't the work just in its video state. The work is the work when it is installed. And so that's when it is projected onto the water. And so when we were trying to pivot that notion, yeah, you know, it was like how do we do that online? How do we not just have another another window of video? Because everyone, you know, we're kind of getting bombarded by that idea, and also that that undermines the integrity of the project a little bit. So we brought a three D ocean into it. It's kind of kind of ironic because you sort of think, oh, it's, it's about climate change and well being of the ocean and our environment and our connection to it. And then we're sort of replicating that or simulating that in a 3D environment or in an online environment. But I, I like to think that the digital space exists in a really similar way as the water space. So digital space connects us as well. It's the space between us. You know, you're, you're on a whole other continent on the other side of the world. <laughs> and yet we're connecting through digital means. You know, there's a whole whole lot that connects us and makes our relationship, keeps our relationship going and keeps it connected and so that's the digital ocean that we created is kind of a metaphor for that and also a metaphor for our ocean and so the artworks are almost like islands, islands in the, you know, spread out across this ocean that you can sort of you know, get head towards that that one and then another one and navigate in a 3D environment of the Black Ocean. It has been so amazing to connect our two places through this work. How the speed of transmission that lights the fire that brings out the stories about the ocean. It's so nice to hear Mike and Rachel's experiences from New Zealand of the virtual Nui Blanche, which was a first. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, it was really overwhelming, amazing to be part of such a huge project and see those synergies and connections with UA Live. A lot of our works actually made testimony to, like, the virtual spaces within making the works because of COVID and the pivot, but not just that as well. Like, it was it sort of addressed those even before they came into the Manamwana Digital Ocean. So I guess um, around the world, uh, there was some alignments with how our project could fit. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. It was great to see um, how it was mixed with other works and it wasn't in the same kind of um, context as the digital ocean or like the water screen um, and having all these other wonderful, phenomenal artists and artworks and responses and just seeing the, yeah, the connection. Like, I actually, um, I think you captured that, that kind of energy of a festival really well. And I, like when I when I think of our Manamoana website and the Nui Live as you know in contrast, it's kind of interesting because you like a big part of it you were curating across time as well as space, but 
you know, like where we created a 3D space, you know, because you're kind of imagining how in both cases we were taking what would have been a physical live event and trying to reimagine it into a virtual space and how people might be able to operate and still get the important things out of it that were part of the physical event. And so I kind of think it's interesting. We ended up with a 3D ocean. <laughs> so, so you kind of have sort of a 3D, you know, you navigate or across the space in that way. And then you ended up with, well, I, I mean, I think the live thing. Six Hour Festival was epic. And it kind of, and it had to be because it had to try and try and evoke the scale of what would have been. And so, you know, anyone doing it, I don't know anyone else who's attempted a six hour festival. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> like that's pretty epic, you know, because you kind of got to think, yeah, how people are going to come and go and, you know, they're just... So I, I think it's a really interesting, we were sort of both, you, your, your event was a lot larger than ours, but it was nice to see that that energy kind of was, you know, in all the marketing, all of it, it was captured. And I really felt it when I jumped into the, the different parts of Nui Live. Um, the Nui in your neighbourhood, oh, that was so much fun. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I played around with it. I put, put the different things in our staff room. I put the, took photos of people behind things. <laughs> it was quite fun <laughs> to train, transform your environment in that way. And the people behind the camera, you know, behind your phone, they have no idea what you do. But <laughs> yeah, from a curatorial point of view, uh, I guess that globally, um, there would have just been such a huge shift and pivot for like, you know, smaller projects, big projects, big festivals, um, just, yeah, people doing things in public space, having to like mm. reimagine their, what they're saying and their practice and their process and how to do it. Some of the responses... I think um, we'll be able to look back on years to come and you'll, you'll be able to like see that it was a, a huge pandemic mm. um, and, and a lot of people, <laughs> you know, like art still lives, like it can, it's live, it can um, organically change and adapt. It's so true to imagine how to recreate and innovate new experiences in art where people can engage and participate is even more important in our current climate. Hmm. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say Chimigwich, Marcy, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place. <laughs>